This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of November 4th, 2013, and I'm Michael Howie, welcoming you to episode 105 of Defender Radio. On the docket this week, we're talking with Rob Laidlaw, founder of ZooCheck, who recently assisted in the move of elephants from the Toronto Zoo to a California sanctuary. APFA's own Adrian Nelson, who will share the success of our beaver program. And we're always happy to welcome back our good friend and title sponsor, Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. It seems fitting to start a new month with a few of our recent victories. Defender Radio News the municipality of Seashelt, British Columbia, passed forward a bylaw heavily restricting the use of traps within their borders. Trappers' associations were out in full force, trying to convince council that trapping is a good thing and safe for everyone. But council was not convinced. Thanks in part to the support of our members and the community of Seashelt, the town will be keeping a closer eye on trappers and the use of the cruel devices in years to come. And thanks to a partnership between Coyote Watch Canada and APFA, the City of Toronto will no longer be killing coyotes. A motion, successfully put forward by Councillor Glenda Bearmaker, will see that lethal action is only a last resort in extraordinary circumstances. The City will look to coexistence strategies including education, bylaw creation and enforcement, and science-based understanding for managing the presence of coyotes in the future. It's the hard work of our supporters and members who make these victories possible. From all of us at APFA to all of you, thank you. Defender Radio News Rob Laidlaw is the founder of ZooCheck, an organization that seeks to protect animals in specific situations through education, investigation, and legislative work. Rob is also the author of a series of popular children's books focused on educating youths and adults alike about wildlife. Rob joins Defender Radio to talk about the Toronto Zoo elephants, recent announcements about the OSPCA, and how people can make a difference in the lives of wild animals. Rob, how does ZooCheck get involved with various zoos, aquariums, and exhibits, and for what purpose? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I think there uh, are a variety of ways that we get involved in zoos and aquariums, and they range uh, across a whole continuum of activities. Uh, in the past, we uh, did a great deal of uh, direct dialogue with zoos, so we would meet with zoo owners, zoo directors, zoo employees, we would attend zoo conferences, and we occasionally would be involved in what we called summit meetings where members of the animal welfare community would meet with members of the zoo community and discuss various kinds of activities. So there's been that kind of uh, initiative over the years. Uh, but there's also a lot of other kinds of ways that we get involved. Uh, some of them involve uh, investigative work where we will go out either announced or unannounced. Uh, I would say in, in the last number of years, more often unannounced, and do zoo inspections. And that can be done internally by ZooCheck staff or through contractors. And uh, a lot of times uh, we will make the results of our investigations known to the zoo and ask for a response. And other times it, the, the results of the investigations are used for other purposes, like to support a legislative initiative or something like that. Um, there's a lot of uh, times when um, there are other uh, forms of dialogue or interaction with the zoo community. 
Uh, I don't think you could really sort of say that there's any one that uh, uh, we're dealing with uh, exclusively. We try to deal with uh, the zoo community on many, many levels. And the reason we do this is that we feel it's important uh, to give the zoo animals a voice, uh, particularly when it comes to their uh, welfare and well-being, because we feel that many uh, members of the zoo community do not uh, adequately represent the interests of the animals. There's been a lot of talk in the media lately about the move of the Toronto Zoo elephants, who are sent to a sanctuary in California. Why do you think there was so much opposition about this move? Well, I think uh, the bulk of the opposition was based on uh, the need for control. The zoo industry, meaning the two zoo associations here in North America, as well as the Toronto Zoo itself and many of the people associated with it, uh, do not want to lose control over their animals. And this is a debate that's raging throughout North America and, in fact, in other jurisdictions around the world, this uh, debate over control. Uh, the zoo industry wants to uh, have total control over uh, both the acquisition and the disposition of the animals that they deal with. They do not want outsiders, in this case people like us from the animal welfare community or uh, people from the sanctuary community, uh, sort of uh, treading in their territory. So this is very much a battle of control. And, and the reason it became such a heated battle is that uh, the zoo industry feels that elephants are the line in the sand, that if they uh, give way on elephants, then other species will follow. Um, and this has been articulated, actually, in some of their own uh, publications, this idea that elephants are a line in the sand. Probably another line in the sand these days are orcas in aquariums. Uh, they don't want to lose control because they feel it's the thin edge of the wedge. There's also a bit of a, a philosophical battle going because uh, obviously people coming from the welfare side of things or the animal rights side of things or to a certain extent the sanctuary side of things, they represent a different philosophy, a different perspective on dealing with animals, uh, sometimes profoundly different than that found in the zoo community. And uh, that's a perspective that isn't shared, obviously, by the zoo community, and they don't... Uh, uh, they don't like it, uh, they feel it's threatening, and uh, they feel it makes them look bad. So they don't want their animals, or what they perceive to be their animals, uh, going to sanctuaries. They see that as going into enemy territory and making them look bad. And uh, I think those are, are two of the major reasons for the uh, animosity. Uh, and there's lots more. This, this whole thing has gone on with, with the Toronto situation for several years. And it's been very heated, and there's been a lot of different players with all different kinds of perspectives. But I would say, at its core, it was more an issue of control and an issue of battling philosophies. The Ontario government recently announced increased funding and changes for the USPCA. What was your reaction to that news? It was a massive disappointment. It was a case of classic uh, political management. They throw some money at the Ontario SPCA. Uh, pump it out there as a good news announcement and uh, beyond that there's little substance to it. Uh, I'm not begrudging the OSPCA getting money. I think it's important to have a robust provincial humane society that's able to go out and enforce uh, the acts that uh, they're delegated to enforce. But when it came to, to the wildlife and captivity issues, uh, the government did not do anything that they should have done. And in fact, uh, in the consultation that occurred last year, there were a number of key points that were brought forward 
None of them were included in the announcement. Uh, and in previous initiatives, going way back to uh, the David Peterson government in the early 1990s, uh, you know, uh, those initiatives um, also came up with some key points which mirrored the ones that were discussed in this latest consultation. None, none of them uh, were included. So just to uh, explain what they are, uh, there is no licensing of, of zoos or aquariums or, or menageries. What they're going with is a voluntary registry, which is basically meaning, meaningless because you don't need to register. Uh, so there's no licensing or permitting that would weed out uh, the bad players from the start. Uh, that is the foundation on which almost every program in jurisdictions across Canada uh, in the United States and around the world is based on a permitting or licensing system so that you're regulating from the front end and not the back end. There are no robust standards for terrestrial wildlife. There's only a promise of standards, and the government had over a year. They could easily have brought forward uh, uh, detailed standards. Uh, there was a serious discussion about banning whales and dolphins. They chose not to do that. Instead, they've uh, all they've come up with is a promise that there will be uh, some type of standard brought forward in 2014. Uh, to, uh, to us, we think that's very dangerous because, uh, you know, when you're creating standards, you may entrench the practice further when other jurisdictions in the world are moving away from the display and keeping of those animals altogether. Uh, there's no uh, ban on private individuals keeping dangerous animals as pets, so we can still, in Ontario, go out and buy a tiger and a spitting cobra and a bear and keep them as a pet. Uh, there is no uh, uh, additional mechanisms for transparency, and that's been one of the complaints for a very long time, that unlike you know, in the United States where the USDA inspector goes into a zoo and writes a report, and that's posted on the Internet for anyone to see, Nobody can access information from the OSPCA because it's private. It's a private entity. So the transparency and accountability uh, is not uh, being changed at all. There is none. And then we had also advocated uh, for whistleblower protection because when you're doing inspections, it may be once a year or once every two years or whatever, the people who are in these facilities uh, that are compassionate, caring individuals uh, that encounter problems, and they call us all the time. Uh, many of them are afraid to come out because they're afraid of being sued, just like the marine land trainers were sued, so we wanted whistleblower protection. So none of these things that would have helped wildlife in captivity uh, were included in the announcement. And, uh, you know, it was a profound disappointment. Uh, I think the government dropped the ball. They could have taken a giant step forward after 30 years of debate, and they chose not to. Whether it's marine mammals at a massive theme park or a bear in a roadside cage, there's a lot going on with zoos in Canada. What can people do to try and make a difference? Well, you know, there's a whole continuum of activities, and what I always say is find your place on that continuum and always seek to improve. You know, life circumstances differ from person to person. Perhaps you may get one person who all they can do is write, some emails a couple of times a week to their local elected officials. Well, if that's all they can do, that that that's great. You know, I I hope they do it. Uh, at the other end of the continuum, you may get people who have the time and the ability to basically drop everything they do and to pursue an issue. Uh, I think the most important thing is that people uh, 
start to, to reach out and engage official agencies uh, and their elected representatives. You know, it's sort of uh, uh, something that's out there all the time, and you know, you hear that time and time again. Contact your MPP, contact your MP, contact your local councillor, contact and make a complaint to an agency. Uh, and it may seem at times like those things are not effective, but in fact, if you do it, if you establish relationships with your elected officials, if you uh, intelligently engage the agencies that receive uh, complaints about various issues, and enough people do it, then things can change. Um, you know, we've seen it happen uh, hundreds of times over the last 30 years. So. Uh, in our experience, those things do matter, but it's just just uh, uh, a matter of individuals who see a problem, not you know turning away and saying, "Well, I can't do anything about it," but instead saying, uh, "I'm going to do something about it. I don't know what I'll do, but I'm going to find out and you know uh, pursue it that way." And probably the best example is that I can think of for me personally is me. You know, 30 years ago. I saw a zoo. I didn't know anything about the rules for zoos or anything, and I just thought, I, I can't turn away from those animals. I'm going to try to do something about it. Now, I never thought I'd still be doing this all these years later, but uh, you know, I think there are lots of people. I'm, I'm not a special person or anything. There's lots of people who do the same, and I think uh, if more people did that, then things would change. Just fi find your, your place on the continuum. Always seek to improve, and don't turn away from an issue. See, see what you can do about it and, and make your best effort. To find out more about Rob Laidlaw or ZooCheck, visit them online at www.zoocheck.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Joining us now is Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Brad has spent over 20 years developing a truly humane method of removing wildlife from homes and urban areas, ensuring the safety of not only homeowners, but animals as well. 
Brad, what is it about your background that suited you specifically to working with wildlife in a humane manner? Um, first of all, I, I grew up on a ravine lot in Scarborough, and my parents embraced my interest in animals. Um, my dad had helped me build multiple cages to house all of my critters. Uh, I had the opportunity to raise rabbits and tumbler pigeons, which are pigeons that actually do backflips in the air, uh, squirrels, and uh, in particular, a raccoon, which I named Mandy. Um, Mandy was a huge impact on me. She was my constant companion for an entire summer when I was 16. And at the end of the summer, I realized that Mandy was a wild animal and I had to train her to to live in the wild or in an urban setting on her own. And when that experience was over, I realized that I wanted to turn my passion for wildlife into a career. And I approached the company that I received Mandy from, which was a wildlife removal company. And basically, um, working for them during the summer, I learned how not to run a wildlife company. Um, they would often separate mothers from their babies. Um, they used uh, noxious gases like formaldehyde to drive animals out of attics. So at the end of that experience, I realized that there had to be an animal-friendly way to remove wildlife. Um, so I wanted to start a business doing that, but it wasn't until after I got my degree at the University of Guelph that I set out to start my own company. And it was a bit of a process, um, experimenting along the way, using um, techniques that didn't actually capture the animal, but more or less allowed the animal to leave the house as it normally would to forage through what we now call a one-way door. And then when it returned, it couldn't get back in. So very passive, um, no stress um, given to the animal. Because it's it's going through a device that uh, that doesn't embrace it, it just lets it uh, continue on its way. And then after um, we were successful in solving that element of our removal technique, we then had to look at reuniting the babies during the baby season with the mothers. And there was a real process going through that: uh, where to put the babies, um, how to keep the babies warm, especially in the cool months of the spring when um, the temperatures could drop and the babies could die of um, exposure to the elements. So we put heating pads in the boxes, put the boxes close to the point of entry to allow the mother um, to come and get them and collect them one by one and remove them to an alternate den site. So really just having had the experience to, to work closely with animals when I was younger and then um, having a passion for that and then turning that passion into um, into a business that really was animal-friendly and animal-focused. It seems that many pest control or wildlife removal companies immediately look to lethal control. Why do you think this is? Um, it certainly is the old way of thinking. Uh, the simple answer to that question is that killing is easy and it involves very little effort. Um, you don't have to consider what has drawn the animal to that location. Uh, you don't have to develop a long-term strategy. And it takes very little manpower to implement a kill strategy. Um, and this, fortunately, it is becoming a little bit less of a, a knee-jerk reaction to, to kill an animal. I think in today's society, more people, at least in Ontario, more people are concerned about the, the welfare of animals and they're looking beyond I hope in most cases, um, 
not killing the animal and, and looking for humane solutions. Um, to jump to conclusions and assume that you can solve a wildlife problem by simply killing the target animal is, is very narrow-minded thinking. Uh, the individuals making these decisions either haven't taken the time to understand the reasons why the wildlife is there in the first place, or they refuse to believe the science behind it. Um, it has been proven time and time again that by implementing population reduction strategies by killing animals in a given area, um, it doesn't provide for a long-term solution. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it can make the problem worse. Um, there was a study done by the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources years ago where they reduced 60% of the raccoons that were living in a given area. And within two years after they knocked the population down, the population had rebounded to 1.3 times the original population size. So rather than leave it alone where the population probably wouldn't have increased by moving in and, and killing these animals off, they actually increase the population over time. Um, so whenever a population of animals is unnaturally reduced by killing them off, the remaining animals, they have more access to food because there's nothing done to reduce the food in the area. And, and they, therefore, they'll have twice as many babies. Um, the animals that are in that surrounding area around where the reduction occurred will move in to take advantage of food and shelter opportunities. And that's how the population ends up rebounding um, higher than it originally was. Um, ultimately, wildlife problems need to be solved based on science. Uh, we know that um, the amount of food and shelter that exists in an area is what drives the population. If you have lots of food and lots of shelter, like in the city of Toronto, um, without reducing one of those components, you're going to have high numbers of wildlife. Um, so if we get our garbage under control, um, we're going to naturally see the population reduced. Um, shelter is a, a more difficult task, too. But people can cap their chimneys and screen their roof fence and protect their homes, and that is one way to, to reduce, reduce shelter. But there, are so, there is so much shelter available for them. Um, but there are, there are also situations um, where where the wildlife is only perceived as a problem and, and the best thing to do is educate the public on why the animals are there in the first place. What are some of the things you train your team for that other companies may not be aware of? A big part of the wildlife removal business um, is the fact that we work at heights. We're on rooftops, we're working on ladders. Um, we're dealing with um, sometimes aggressive animals and the diseases that they may carry. So health and safety plays a very big part in what we do. And something that I've always been, um, been number one for me with respect to my, my staff safety and my client safety is making sure that my staff is informed about the individual diseases that exist in wildlife. And not only that they are aware of the disease, but they, they understand how that disease manifests itself in the host animal, how it's transmitted, and what are the symptoms if they should or somebody should become infected by that disease. So instilling this awareness in them allows them to share that knowledge um, and take measures to protect themselves and their clients. An example of this is um, a parasite that lives in the intestine of raccoons called the roundworm. Scientific name is Bayless ascaris, and what this roundworm does, it doesn't affect 
um, the health of the raccoon, but it sheds its eggs in the feces of the raccoon. So once the feces is on the outside of the raccoon for 30 days, the eggs then become viable. They're able to infect another animal. Now, the feces has to be eaten by an animal or a human in order for it to get into our system. And you might think that not not many people are going to pick up raccoon feces and taste it, but most of the infections that occur occur in young children that are more likely to um, pick something up that may have come in contact with the feces or, um, you know, touch the feces itself and then put their hands in their own mouth. So it is a, it's a, it is a real um, concern if raccoon latrines exist around the property or, or, or in spaces where human contact is, is probable um, and it needs to be addressed and cleaned up. Our experience with our competitors is that they don't know about this disease um, to any great extent. Um, certainly the media has covered it, so they may know that it's out there, but they are not aware of what precautions to take and, and certainly not, uh, they don't know enough to educate their clients on how to deal with it and, and what to do to protect themselves from, from becoming infected by this disease. Now, in the situation where feces exists in attics, um, we're seeing companies going up with garbage bags, um, loading up um, the garbage bag with the feces, and then proceeding to drag this bag through the house and out the front door. And all the way along, as we know, if we try to fill a garbage bag up with leaves, the leaves end up on the outside of the bag, and you end up picking them up again then the bag, the outside of the bag could be contaminated. It gets sat down on the floor as they're coming out of the attic or put down at the front door. So these eggs are very sticky, coating on the eggs that can transfer very easily to other substances. Um, so that's one way that these companies are removing the species. Another way is that they're putting um, in vacuums and they're dragging these hoses through the inside of houses and up into the attic to suck out insulation that has feces on it and ultimately what's happening is that the vacuum hose itself will come in contact with the feces and they take that from one house to another house and to another house and then the rug gets these eggs on them if you have small children they drop a soother onto the carpet and inadvertently one of these eggs attaches itself to it um, that child could become infected and the other side of this vacuuming process is they have a large filter bag on the outside with the vacuum so and it is known that raccoon roundworm can become um, airborne so and they're certainly helping this along by by sucking it out and having it tumble its way down inside a vacuum hose and then it gets forced into this large bag that fills up with air but the air can pass through the outer skin of the bag and I'm assuming I mean I'm not uh, I don't think any research has been done on this but I'm assuming that these eggs, if air can pass through, because these are micro, micro small eggs, that the eggs could pass through the outside of the bag and become airborne out on the street for passerbys um, or other individuals to uh, potentially pick them up. So, yeah, I, I, back to your original question, we make, I, I make sure that my staff are, are fully educated on this stuff, and we don't remove feces. I think it's best to leave that to people that are used to handling things like asbestos or mold where they will completely um, do a remediation that involves um, you know, proper uh, ventilation in the room or the area that is being 
um, concerned. Everything gets double bagged. Nothing comes in contact with um, the floor or anything other than where it was found and where it, and where the garbage is on the outside. Um, so I think asbestos, certainly asbestos removal and uh, mold removal companies should be hired to do this and not relying on a wildlife removal individual who really doesn't know what he's doing. You've regularly spoken about many of your methods for humane wildlife removal, be it on your website, this program, or on television. Aren't you concerned that competitors may take these ideas as their own? I don't mind sharing some of our methodology. Certainly we do have trade secrets that enable us to, to do our business better than anybody else. Um, but if informing my competition on how to be more humane and as a result, the lives of animals are being saved, then in my mind, um, the world's a better place. I think everybody can can learn um, on how to deal with wildlife in a more humane way. I've been a, a big part of a, um, a traveling roadshow, if you will, that the Humane Society of the United States put on, and their goal was to simply educate uh, nuisance wildlife control operators in the different states on our methods, and um, I embraced that opportunity. I didn't get paid for it, um, but I thought down in, in the U United States, their uh, primary goal was to, to catch an animal on a trap and then euthanize it, and um, by sharing my knowledge on how to do it um, in a humane way, uh, more and more companies came on, on board, and uh, the Humane Society and, and local Humane Societies were, were thrilled that the animals weren't just indiscriminately being put down. These days we're talking a lot about how municipalities are managing the presence of coyotes in their communities. I know you've had a personal experience with this. Would you mind sharing that story? Yes, about uh, three or four years ago now, uh, we had a coyote that was spotted numerous times in our neighborhood. Uh, we live in a um, fairly a small um, enclave, if you will. There might be 250 houses in this area. We back on to a hydro field on one end and ravine on the other two sides. And this coyote, um, during January, uh, frequented our neighborhood. And we have a lot of uh, homeowners with small dogs, so they became, um, they became concerned that this coyote could jump a, a six-foot fence and, and take their dog. So I was asked to, to at least um, give them some information on, on what they should be doing with respect to um, solving this situation or at least protecting their pets. I took it upon myself to put together a flyer stipulating all the, the, the things that they should be doing with respect to um, making sure that their pets aren't um, off-leash um, when they take them for walks, um, when they put them in the backyard, kind of keep an eye on them, that sort of thing. And if they were to be confronted by a coyote, you know, to, to raise their hands up, make themselves big and, and yell and don't run away from a coyote because they'll see that as a, a, a ch their chase instinct will kick in because they'll think you're prey. So by sending out that flyer door to door, I also asked for an email address so that we could keep in touch for in, in the event we needed to communicate um, in the future. 
And then I started, we just had a fresh snowfall the day after I, I put out the flyer. And I wanted to see, because there was a sighting that morning, I wanted to see what was drawing the coyote into our neighborhood. And as I followed the coyote's tracks, it went directly to a bird feeder, um, a well-used bird feeder with lots of seed on the ground. And it had eaten some of the seeds because the homeowner had had witnessed it doing so. But it would also spend time in a thicket, which was just an overgrown, unkept area of, of bushes. And it was, it would sit in there waiting for squirrels or birds to come to the feeder. So the number one attraction in that backyard was obviously food. Then I watched, or I followed the footprints away from that area to a composter where it stuck its head into the base of the composter and got um, eggshells and and other uh, foods that were put into the composter. So the, the main attraction, as it is with most animals, was food. The reason this animal was in our neighborhood. So I then, that evening, sent out another email, or sent out the first email, sorry, um, suggesting that everybody that had bird feeders, that they remove them. Um, and composters only compost things that are that are non-meat or or dairy-oriented and just use vegetable matter and that sort of thing in those so the coyote would not be attracted. And in a very short period of time, everybody complied. I, I actually approached the one neighbor that had the, the bird feeder in the backyard, and she was more than willing to take it down. Um, to keep the coyote from coming into the neighborhood. And I believe in the, the next two months that followed, there were three sightings of the coyote. And then beyond that, I think in the last three years, I've been made aware of only twice the, the coyote has actually wandered into our neighborhood and um, and left promptly because there was no food to keep it here. Were your neighbors satisfied with this end result? Absolutely. Um, the one other component that I, I failed to mention is we, um, by having this group email list of, of I would say, 80% of the residents in this community, um, they were able to communicate um, to each other about the sightings. And that in itself was gratifying for them because if they knew somebody had posted at 11 o'clock, say, on a Saturday morning, that the coyote was in the neighborhood, then everybody would, would take better care um, with their pets when they would normally let them out without thinking about it um, in the backyard. They would keep them indoors or, as I said, they'd take them out on leash. Um, so they they felt safer having this whole process uh, available to them. That was Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. To find out more about Brad and his humane methods of managing wildlife in urban centers, visit www.gateswildlifecontrol.com or follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. The average North American consumes five times more than a Mexican, ten times more than a Chinese person, and 30 times more than a person from India. We are the most voracious consumers in the world. A world that could die because of the way we North Americans live. Give it a rest. November 26 is Buy Nothing Day. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. 
At BearSmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at BearSmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Hi, my name is Beth Naked, and you're listening to Defender Radio. Defender Radio News. Direct mail is a tried and tested way that APFA raises money in support of wildlife across Canada. This year, we wanted to do something special for our members and included address stickers, as well as a special Christmas ornament. This type of fundraising is the main source of income for APFA, and we thank you for your generous support. The idea is that one half of the ornament should be sent back in with your donation, while the other half can be hung up on your own tree to remind you and your loved ones to help bring hope to the animals. As we collect the ornaments, we will hang them on our own Christmas tree for the animals. For those of you who received the letter, it was probably difficult to read the story about the trapper who found a wolf in his trap one winter. That heartbreaking scene stays with everyone who reads about it, and it is a prime example of what we are hoping to stop across Canada. There's no reason for these beautiful animals to suffer, and your donations can help us make a difference today. Please support the animals with whatever donation you can afford. Learn more at FurBearDefenders.com Defender Radio News When a municipality is considering killing a beaver, APFA doesn't just send a letter, we send Adrian Nelson. The Director of Communications for APFA, Adrian is also our in-house beaver expert. For the last four years, he has visited communities across the country, assisting municipalities in developing coexistence strategies and teaching them how to build beaver flow devices. These are tools that allow beavers to remain where they are without the risk of flooding or infrastructure damage. Adrian joins us now to talk a bit about the success of APFA's beaver program. Hey Adrian, why don't we start at the beginning? How did APFA get started with the beaver program? Well, the program really developed out of a a need for some uh, real alternatives for dealing with beavers. Um, These these flow devices have been around for well over a decade, uh, but we didn't see a lot of people that were kind of picking up the use of these things. So we decided that what we would do is we would go into these municipalities and help them. We would install these for them. Um, and at first we start, we paid for them. We brought in the volunteers to build and install and maintain them. Uh, and really just wanted to show people that these did in fact work and were, were a very viable solution for dealing with, uh, nuisance beavers. And since then it just keeps exploding. You know, more and more people hear about it and hear how well these are going, um, and want to implement them in their own communities as well. From what I've seen, the building and installation of flow devices seems to be a relatively straightforward endeavor. It is. It is a very simple process. You know, really we're talking about a fence to keep beavers out of culverts or a pipe to allow water to go through the dam. 
Um, the principles behind them are really, really simple. And when you see one installed and how they work, it really clicks and makes sense. Um, so the first thing we try to do is uh, analyze the area that it's going into, try to figure out sort of the, the best approach, which way the water's going, where our deep spots are, that kind of thing. Um, and then most of these are built right on land, usually right beside where we're doing them. So the, you know, with the pond levelers, it's a, it's a large pipe with a, a cage on the end that keeps the beavers from being able to access the inlet end of the pipe. Um, so the cage is built, it's installed onto the end of the pipe. And then the whole thing is basically just floated into place. Um, the dam is opened up slightly to allow for the pipe to drop into place. It's dropped in and the dam's repaired back over top of it. Uh, and that's pretty much it. It's, it's relatively simple with those. What kind of reaction do you typically find when you present the beaver program to a new municipality? You know what, it's a real mix when we first go into places. Um, some people are very progressive, very forward-thinking, uh, really want to try something new, try something different. Um, so they're quite eager to see these in action, quite eager to get going and try them out. And then we get others who have either had a bad experience with something in the past, you know, are very stubborn about the way that they've always done things and that's the only way to do it, and they're just reluctant to change in some ways. And so, you know, they, they come back with us, well, you know, these aren't going to work and, you know, we've seen them before, they don't work and, you know, we'll basically we'll watch you fall on your, fall on your face with this. Um, but pretty much no matter where they are coming from when we first start, the reactions are pretty much the same when we finish up. And that's really the fact that, wow, these did work. This was really simple to do. And this has freed up a lot of our time now. Um, and, you know, people are quite stoked once he's, once he's finally going in and are working. Is there a notable cost difference between trapping beavers and installing flow devices? Well, trapping usually costs a couple hundred dollars um, when they want to bring the trapper in, um, depending on how much trapping has to be done, how long through the season, um, and whether or not they're very successful right off the bat. Um, so initially it looks cheaper because you're only dealing with a couple hundred dollars where a flow device is between about four to six hundred dollars. Um, the problem is the trapping isn't a long-term solution. Uh, and we usually have to have those trappers back in the next year or the year after and the year after that and the year after that. Um, so over a 10-year period, you're paying a couple hundred bucks every year or two. And that really adds up. Whereas a flow device has a lifespan of 10 years plus usually on them. Um, and so four to six hundred bucks up front, you're saving that cost over, over the next 10 years. Plus, in the case of municipalities and things like that, you're saving all kinds of time and money in just man hours that are used in pulling beaver dams apart and opening culverts up and things like that, you know, in between when you get the trapper out there. So the savings are quite huge when you look at it from the big picture. What's the success rate of trapping as compared to flow devices? Trapping has a success rate uh, great for the first year, and then it goes down. You know, it's, it's not a long-term solution. So really the success rate is zero because they're probably going to be back in there or, you know, a small percentage. Um, in the four years that we've been installing them now, we haven't had a single failure on a, on a flow device. Now that being said... Um, you know, they're not all perfect. There will be the occasional, you know, hiccup with them. Um, some of the fellows in the States that have been pioneering these for the last decade, they average somewhere between about 95 to a 97% success rate on them. 
That was APFA's own Adrian Nelson. To find out more about the successes we've had with flow devices and how your community can save the lives of beavers, visit us at www.furbearerdefenders.com. That's the show for this week. On behalf of the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio. Stay informed, stay strong.